0: Well, greetings and welcome to the first of our Fresh Text monthly specials. I'm Todd Bishong, the editor here at the show, and I wanted to be the first to welcome you to our new monthly series, which will be available to patrons at patreon.com forward slash Fresh Text. The team has elected to make the first of these monthly specials available to all listeners. That's why it's showing up in your Fresh Text feed. Moving forward, it will be available to all patrons who donate at any level at patreon.com forward slash fresh text. We hope you enjoy this conversation and look forward to connecting with you on Patreon in the months to come.
1: Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text bonus episode. This is our very first bonus episode. Just trying to put out a little bit of bonus content for our patron saints. uh, Those who signed up Uh, in case we uh, share this more broadly. If you haven't become a patron saint, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and you can see some different ways that you can support the show. I have a day job. I don't see a cent of that. That's for the guys behind the scenes uh Todd Merrick and, and all their time and work and equipment that they use to keep the Fresh Tech show going but we thought it'd be fun to do something a little different now. So yeah, I'm here with Brandon Hancock. Say yeah. hi Brandon. Oh. And Brandon is uh, one of my best friends and uh coworker and we love talking about movies, especially weird movies and especially movies with religious themes and ones that portray ministers and the life of the parish and all that and one of one of the most important films in that sort of category uh in recent years is a movie called first reformed so we wanted to chat about that today and uh for your benefit so brandon uh let's start with just uh we'll start with the why question like why first reform why is this a why is this a movie people should see if they happen to be listening to this and haven't watched it yet, convince them to pause this and go watch it. Like, why is it great? And then we'll, we'll summarize it and
0: all that and get into the weeds later. But and I was thinking like maybe even before that, since maybe some of the listeners don't, don't know me as well as they know you or don't know our, our friendship as much. I, I was just re recalling in my head, like the the movies that we've watched together over the years that we've worked together and that we've been friends. And it's funny because it's either like total, trash, like, like a Bourne movie or something like that, you know, just like big blockbuster movies that we're getting together with a bunch of friends and going to see, or it's like Parasite. We watched, we watched Parasite together. we watched first reform together. We watched uh, get out together. I dragged you to a horror movie, even though you hate horror movies. Um, <laughs> so there seems to be like, we either watch just like mindless, fun, entertaining films together, or ones that we think about, and talk about for like years to come, <laughs> not just moments after and then move on with life, but uh, I wish we could watch more movies together because it's just busy time in life with both of our you know kids being the ages they are, so it's exciting to get to chat about a movie well, that you
1: and your you and your kids took my son to Ragnarok i didn 't see it with you, and that would fit in both categories that's uh, popcorn cheese ball, and you can talk about it <laughs> for years. <laughs>
0: We've been doing a rewatch, a Marvel rewatch, as us too, as a family during kind of during quarantine, about one about one a week maybe.
1: Yes, we we're in the middle of a rewatch as well. Yeah,
0: are you going release date or are you going chronological? Oh,
1: it's worse because it wasn't planned; it just happened, and we've basically been going backwards. Oh gosh, (laughs) (laughs) like well, we've seen them all so many times. We're kind of jumping around, you know.
0: Right, of course. Well, first reformed had been highly anticipated for me just because it was the first movie that Paul Schrader had done in a while I think in the first place the the director and we'll talk more about him uh maybe in a little bit but I'm I'm not positive about this I'd have to go back and look it up I probably should have before we <laughs> recorded but it it may be the first film that he both wrote and directed entirely himself if that's not the case it certainly is and he's made very clear in, um, things that he said about the film, that it really is kind of the first, um, kind of the apotheosis of his, of his, uh, transcendental style in film, which is a kind of critical Absolutely. concept that, uh, that he first kind of developed in the seventies writing about film and about other filmmakers, but put that on pause. I'll just plant a little Easter egg about the transcendental style in film and how this film encapsulates this, but I mean it was a small kind of art house type film but starring some some pretty significant and well-known actors which is kind of interesting he cast Cedric the Entertainer as uh, a mega church pastor Ethan Hawke as a a small um pastor of a, a pastor of a small church not a small pastor but a pastor of a of a small church called First Reformed from which the film gets its title uh, Amanda Seyfried who many of us know from uh, mean Girls, <laughs> and from uh, some other uh, great films in our recent cinema history. And so it's got some big name actors in it that that probably drew some attention to it that might not have otherwise been there for such a kind of odd film. Um, and I think it was met with a lot of uh, mixed audience reviews because people didn't really know what to make of it. It's very highly acclaimed critically from what I could tell. I haven't looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score in a while, but I mean, it's pretty... Pretty well-regarded film, and that means
1: nothing. So who cares what does? Well,
0: <laughs> you know, it's not like in the in the teens or anything like that. <laughs> but it's a it's a portrait of a of a minister um, struggling, I think, between uh, the the poles of of hope and despair as he pastors a a small church in upstate New York a church from the reformed tradition the oldest continually operating church in the i can't remember if the sign at the beginning that they kind of show in the opening scene says the oldest operating church in the county or perhaps in the state but they're they're coming up on their 250th anniversary and having a reconsecration service that um, the, the narrative of the film is all kind of driving towards this reconsecration service that they're going to have for this church. and uh, Ethan Hawke's character, Reverend Toller has been pastoring this church. I mean we assume he's had uh, uh, he's been a chaplain we know this uh, uh, a military chaplain. he's, he's lost a, a son in uh, military service and has had his, his marriage fall apart. In the wake of that. And these things are just kind of barely mentioned in a passing conversation, but we realized that the reason he's here at this particular church was kind of um, uh, another church throwing him a lifeline, this large church, mega church that's pastored by Cedric the Entertainer. They've sort of taken on the responsibility of keeping this church afloat and have assigned him to this church. Uh, That the teenagers of the church refer to as the souvenir shop because they just, you know, they have T-shirts and little historical books about the history of the church, which was, you know, a a spot, uh, a stop on the Underground Railroad, slaves fleeing to Canada, um, has this rich history. And now there's about, what, most of those scenes, there's about nine people sitting in the pews while he...
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and how many do you think it could see? These are the things that you and I can provide that film... Film critics might not know. You know, pastors know how to tell how many people can sit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, how I many think, do
1: you think could sit in there?
0: Probably two hundred, I would think. That's
1: what I was thinking. I couldn't tell if there was a balcony because the shots usually don't go the back direction. But
0: yeah, there's a I was thinking
1: about two hundred. Yep,
0: the org the organ is up in the balcony. It probably would have been kind of an old school choir loft where the choir might have yeah with the with the organ. Concert. So you
1: feel the the cavernous the emptiness of it. It's small and quaint, but definitely you know, meant to, to house a lot more uh, souls than seven (laughs) and having pastored a congregation in South Jersey of a building that could hold the 300 that when I came to fill in, because the pastor before me had to basically like, they had too many weeks in a row. They didn't pay him. So he had to go, he had to leave to get his kids and, yeah. uh, they couldn't pay his kids insurance anymore. And, um, they were down to 25. So imagine preaching to 25 in a room of, that can fit 300, it, the proportion's similar to what he's doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I wasn't
1: in near, I wasn't in nearly the, as dark a place as, as he is, uh, I Though I was in a dark place during those years. <laughs> That was my first, that was my first, not my first church i ministered at, but it was the first, my, it was my first solo gig. Um, yeah. So I felt and some I'm, resonance with him because of that, you know, kind of be, yeah. and it, it was a historic church, not old like that, but it was the flagship church of the district back in the sixties. Yeah. Right. Um, Steve Lennox had pastored there. Wow. Uh, back in the seventies, I think. So what else so anyway.
0: do our listeners need to kind of know about him before we give them a little bit more of a summary of the, of the plot points of the film? He's, he's a, he's a mystic. He's a, he's a huge Thomas mm-hmm. fan. I'm sure there are lots of things that, that you especially can <laughs> resonate with, with him and his, um, his journaling, you know, you're a big journaler. What else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of the, uh, some of the lines, so it, it uses narration in this very clever way. You know, narration is often a, a crutch when you get in the editing booth and you realize, uh-oh, we don't, we can't make sense of how we get from scene A to B, and so we'll have the character talk so that it makes sense. It's not that; it's very intentional. The narration is is all him reading his journal. It's it's while while writing it, but hearing it read. But sometimes over other scenes, so it functions like narration, and it's him describing both what's happening as well as his inner life. And one of the genius moves in the movie is over the course of the movie, his descriptions having begun at the beginning, committing to write this journal and be ruthlessly honest and say what happens and not hide over the course of the movie. Like what he's saying doesn't actually match what you're seeing on the screen, which is a sort of clever device. So he's, you have to, you basically kind of have a a somewhat unreliable narrator kind of trick built in which then prepares you for the fact that you know about halfway through or just past halfway there's a there's a scene that's kind of strange in terms of like the physics of it and 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 also prepares you to recognize that the final scene might not be actually taking place and even questioning whether any of the movie is in fact taking place at all so again that fits into some stylistic sorts of things um but uh, there's other, there's other just little clues, you know, uh, th- th- this young woman, Am- Amanda Seaford plays is uh, yeah. her name's Mary and she's pregnant yeah. and her husband, boyfriend is Michael yeah is kind of obsessed with the, the, the e- coming ecological disaster and really just stressed out about it. And it's kind of gone and he's getting a little berserk and and over over the course of the movie, she even discovers like plans and like bomb equipment that he was planning on engaging in some kind of eco-terrorism uh against some polluting company. And you you see this pastor, and this is what this is what happens in pastoral life, a lot of it, the 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 call to be empathetic and to sort of validate the experience of the congregation, he starts to get obsessed with the the, he sort of has some sympathy with the you know he's not he's not planning a terrorist act but he he kind of sort of recognizes uh some of the validity in this uh young man but also is kind of disturbed by it so and continue and then that 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 i mean spoiler alert but you know that that he ends up is it committing suicide right and The, the, the young man does. And so, and he continues to have a kind of relationship of, of care and it's not sexualized, but there's a kind of intimacy that starts to emerge between him and this young woman as she kind of copes with that. Right. Um, and yeah, he meets with Cedric. I was really worried when I Ced- saw that Cedric Entertainer was booked for it because I thought it would be comic relief and it would be lampooning the mega church pastor, but actually wasn't at all. He, he comes off very, he re, I mean, he's one of the most uh, likable characters in the story. Actually. He, he's, he's saying even a pastor needs a pastor is one of the first things we hear him say to him. And so he's kind of a, he's a supervisor, but also cares about him and wants yep. him to, to flourish and gives him opportunities, sticks up for him. When, when people, when the bit there's a big donor, who loves this old church cause he grew up in it or, and it's his family church and he's, he's wealthy, you know, it has, you know, he's a, his company's one of the polluters that this young man right. is mad at. Right. So it's very, it's, it's intertwined in this beautiful way. Like you said, all building up to this climax of this big event when the, when the church building is full and these historic churches that are empty often will have these special events when they're packed out. Yeah. And it's sort of building up to that sequence and, and, and the weight of all of that. So and a lot of those lines back to the journal, I just kind of went off for a while, but just back to the journal, a lot of those lines from the journal are come straight out of Merton books. So you'll see pictures of Merton books on his bedside. And then the lines will be just, they'll be these sort of Merton kinds of ideas. Though yeah. again, it's the unreliable narrator. They're kind of twisted they're, they're, some of the I think the despair might be a little stronger than the hope in the man at least, but
0: (laughs) yeah. And the first time he, he, I think you're right to bring up the journal, not only because it's an important sort of narrative device, but the way that, as you said, the way that it, that it shifts, he starts out the first words of the film after a very kind of languid camera move up to the church, like the opening scenes are just this really slick the lighting comes up from black, onto this white church out in the middle of the woods and it, and it very slowly the, the light uh, rises and the camera just moves really slowly and languidly up towards the front doors of the church and then shows us the sign that talks about the historical, it's the historical marker. And, uh, and the first words of the film are his journal. Uh, and he tells us he's, he's committing to, to write down like all his, just the events of his day, uh, you know, as kind of factually and comprehensively as possible without any sort of embellishment. And, and, and he's committing to do this for 12 months as an exercise and as an experiment. And he says, at the end of the 12 months, I'll burn, I'll burn the journal or he says, it'll be destroyed. I'll shred it and burn it. And, uh, and, and that, then the experiment will be concluded. So he starts out with these, these uh, goals and he, uh, as it develops, he even, and I think this is important in terms of another shift in the, in the film and in his character, he talks about the journal as a form of prayer. He says, this will be much like my, you know, just kind of daily communication with God when it's possible and when he's listening or something like that. But he says, you know, the, the journal will be a form of prayer, but as the film goes on and as he meets Mary and Michael and, and they kind of, um, his relationship to them and his attempt to care for Michael, this kind of environmental activist who ends up committing suicide because he's, he's got such despair about, you know, the, um, the impending ecological collapse of the planet and his wife is pregnant. And how can we bring a child into this world? He kind of says, how could we, he has two great, I think, questions. The one is can God ever forgive us for what we have done to his creation? And the other is, you know, how could you look, your child in the face, you know, and he's, he's going through all these projections about what the earth is going to be like in 2050. And um,
1: which is when his child will be 33 hint, hint. Yeah, that's Uh, (laughs) right.
0: Uh, My, my, my child will be 33 in 2050. And, you know, he says, uh, how could what, 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 what do you say when, when this child looks at you and says, you knew this all along, and yet you still brought me into this world. And so, as John said, he he ends up taking his own life. And then um, in in uh, Reverend Toller's attempt to continue to care for his widow, um, he begins to kind of absorb empathetically the um, the that cause in a certain sense, you know, becoming a bit a bit of more of a believer that this is, you know, that this is really a, a valid source of despair. Like he says at one point that reason provides no answers Um, and that, you know, that, that despair is a rational response in the, in the face of hopelessness, you know, but that, that, that life is all about this kind of trying to hold in tension. He doesn't use the term coincidentia positorum, but it's kind of this holding in tension or in paradox, the, uh, the, the two poles of hope and despair. And I, that got me thinking that hope and despair thing got me thinking about some, some other sort of binaries i guess in the film or tensions in the film and i just jotted down as i was re-watching it in preparation for our chat there's a tension between language and silence in the film there's a tension between suffering and prosperity that comes through in several ways um there are they're only just like little hints that the megachurch is a bit more of a kind of prosperity gospel dynamic yeah
1: it hints at it it's
0: yeah. not like real overt.
1: It comes out when he, when he asks them to fill in for the youth pastor and hang yeah. out with the teens. And, and that's, it's a subtle way of doing it. it makes it less of a lampoon because yeah. it could just be, this is the teen just shooting his mouth off. Yeah. But you kind of get the vibe that this is kind of what his parents think too, you know, it's kind of, Hey, this all, cause, cause when he fills in, he, he has very much a kind of suffering emphasized picture of the Christian life. Right. Which is well grounded in Christ and and uh, yeah. Job and the Apostle Paul, of course. But it is it is perhaps a bit one sided and and lopsided. It, or shall I say, even if all the words he say are are accurate in terms of logos, his pathos and ethos is all despair. His just way of carrying himself is is the despair. Right. And so and the kid reacts and pushes back. And and one of the great things about it, you mentioned language and silence. It links to that mm-hmm. because suffering when brought to speech becomes can become violence and you see this pastor Toller start to raise his voice and but you only for a second and then our next scene is him talking with the senior pastor kind of helping him like basically like hey dude you can't just like you know just attack a, a teenager <laughs> you know, like you got to listen to him and let him be a little bit, you know,
0: I think, I think the Cedric's character, pastor Jeffers, I think is his name. And he, he says, right. He he says, well, you know, they, they said you handled it really well. And, and, but he's really frustrated with this teenager pushing back on him about, you know, this turn the other cheek stuff and all this suffering servant stuff. Uh, And, but you get it too. And there's a, there's a little scene that would be easy to miss where, um, they're editing like a sermon of the, of the pastor Jeffers of the megachurch pastor in a media booth in the church. And it just, it leads into another scene where you get the prosperity thing in what he's saying. He's talking about, you know, how Jesus wasn't in despair all the time because he, you know, Jesus didn't, he said, that's, he says something like Jesus, Jesus never despaired. Jesus never had anxiety. Because he knew he was doing yes. a higher a higher purpose, and so Jesus never experienced anxiety and despair. And it's like, what? Wait a minute! You know, it's right before the scene where he finally tells. Uh, the, we didn't mention this is because it's a minor plot point, but there's a, a woman in Reverend Toller's congregation who has a romantic interest in him that you can tell they've tried and it's failed, and but she still kind of cares about him and is trying to pursue. Yeah. It. Finally, like pushes her away and says, you know, I despise you, you bring out the worst in me. And, and she kind of says, you know, I I just, I care about you. And it's right, right before that scene that we get this, uh, this additional glimpse and it's there too in his conversation. Oh, and
1: that's him rejecting the, the possibility of prosperity in his own life, through her. And so rejecting that, (laughs) that church and that other approach. That's probably lopsided in another direction. He's sort of, Feeding his own despair, right? Um, a bit. Ah, that's a good the 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 juxtaposition. And Schrader is definitely one of these directors
0: where you nothing's so two, bi- s-
1: yes. So if two scenes are next to each other, they are intended to be interpreted mutually interpreting.
0: And not and it's not long after that 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 he is in the in Pastor Jeffers' office again, and he's and Pastor Jeffers is expressing concern about his health. And that's another point. Mm-hmm the plot that we haven't mentioned yet that is really important is that he, he, he knows something is wrong with his body. He, there's an where we, we see him urinating and there's blood in his urine and he's drinking too much and, but he's He's kind
1: of self-medicating, but the drinking is making it worse. That's quite clear.
0: He's avoiding going to the doctor and, um, yeah. And so we don't really know, but we know that there's something like something, uh, there's a health issue. And Reverend Jeffers says to him, uh, he said, I, I jotted it down so I would forget. He says, he says to Toler, you're always in the garden. Even Jesus was, wasn't always in the garden. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> not, it wasn't always the dark night of the soul, you know? Um,
1: yeah. And but, you can tell he's, he's reached for things like Merton and these mystics because yeah. he sees himself as having a sort of dark night of the soul experience. And of course, one of the questions raised by the film, I think for us as viewers and and especially believing viewers is to kind of ask how do we discern the difference between the dark night of the soul and just depression right he just needs help do you know what i mean uh this is just a man who needs help and who's almost even more cut off from help because he's being a helper to others you know so he's a kind of a starving baker trying to to feed others and help others when he's quite deprived himself. Right. But at the same time, you know, his 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 challenging of the kind of the the emptiness and and vanity of a sort of prosperity gospel is pressing, you know, so it's it's strong. But I I like that you only get tiny glimpses of it from the the pastor who's he's more careful. He says he wasn't always in the garden, which is true, right? Jesus wasn't always bummed out.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there's a scene where I think it speaks to this as well and and it's 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 one of the only other quotes I kind of wanted to pull out of the film where um I think it's during the scene where he's cleaning up the churchyard where there's you know we there's a scene where he's pit, where he's lifting up a gravestone that's toppled over in the churchyard and there's another scene where he finds a a rabbit stuck in razor wire that's over at the edge of the church property. And so there's this dead rabbit that he's, you know, that he has to toss in a garbage bag. And he pulls the razor wire out from where it was and and takes it away as well. This is kind of after he's begun to be more concerned about the environmental issues. And I can't remember if those are the same scene. I think they're two different scenes where he's tending to the churchyard. But during one of them, we're hearing his journal again and his voiceover narration. And he says, Some are called for their gregariousness. Some are called for their suffering. Others are called for their loneliness. He's talking about the pastoral vocation. They are called by God because through the vessel of communication, they can reach out and hold beating hearts in their hands. They are called because of their all-consuming knowledge of the emptiness of all things that can only be filled by the presence of our Savior and and we see that emptiness i think in the film like the in the emptiness of the church building itself in the emptiness of the parsonage there's like hardly any furniture in the Yeah, parsonage. no
1: furniture. There's that one room with nothing in it where that important scene takes place that we'll talk about
0: soon. Yeah. There's one chair yeah. like at the you know there's and like his bedroom has a desk and a bed and that's that's it, you know. Just there's emptiness symbolized, you know, all through his his sort of uh physical <laughs> environment, you know, and, and his, his, the spaces that he inhabits. But I thought that quote about, you know, his sense of his vocation and his calling being his all consuming knowledge of the emptiness of all things that can only be filled by the presence of the the Savior. He references the sickness unto death in his conversation with, uh with Michael, when he's trying to kind of counsel him out of his Despair, and he says, "You know, I I, I get it. I understand." Uh, that's when he actually tells the story of losing his own son and losing his marriage as a result of that. He tells Michael, "Whatever despair you would feel from bringing a child into this world can't can't match the despair I feel of having encouraged my son to enlist in the military because of our family's sort of patriotic traditions, and then that leading to his death in the war." And so, you know, he really embraces this sense of his pastoral vocation being one of compasio of suffering with people
1: suffering. Yeah.
0: And suffering for the people.
1: Yeah. It's real tricky in a movie like this to be careful for viewers, especially ministerial viewers to not, there's two errors one could make in one's sort of appropriation of the insights here. And one extreme would be to say, to see this as just pure warning, Hey, don't go down the despair at all. You'll end up like this guy. Yeah. Um, and then the other extreme would be to, to, to sort of embrace it fully as like this kind of, this sort of uh, a twisted martyrdom, self self mutilating martyrdom. I, I feel like the, the truth is, is a lot more. Yeah. Sort of paradoxical and in, in the, in the, the coincide to be able to see the element of truth in, in what he is exploring. But to not let the sort of despair get the upper hand, whatever Schrader's intent is, at least that's an intent. Um, that would be, a, I think, an appropriation that would be worth considering. Let's take a quick break and come back. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about Paul Schrader more broadly, um, just as a background to the, to the film and, and uh, for our own edification. So let's take a quick break and come back. We're back. Welcome back to our Fresh Text bonus episode with Brandon Hancock. And we're talking about, talking about? we're talking about uh, First Reformed, uh, film that came out in, uh, was it 17, 18? Uh, 17. Yeah. Starring Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, Cedric the Entertainer, and directed by Paul Schrader. And you mentioned already earlier that Paul Schrader had written a book and was a critic. Uh, early on in his career in the seventies. And then from there went on to write and direct a number of different films, many of which did not use what he refers to as the transcendental style right. uh, that it, that he was analyzing in, in especially some European filmmakers. Uh, but he, and he, I've seen interviews with him saying, this is kind of, this was the moment when he decided to actually do it himself so in some ways, this movie stands apart and is a kind of return to an original insight, though there are parallels, obviously, between this and, and some of his other movies. But uh, tell us a little bit about Paul Schrader. I, I've not read that book. Maybe you have. But maybe you could tell or at least tell us a little bit about what he means by transcendental style. And, and so what does Schrader have to say to us both as a critic and as a filmmaker that might be helpful for understanding this movies and films in general? What could we learn from him?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm no expert on Schrader, but I mean, many of us know, I mean, Schrader's cinema legacy is more to do with films that he's written. And, and many of us, we know his films through his collaborations with Martin Scorsese. Okay. So
1: taxi driver, baby, right. Which in some ways Ethan Hawke's character here is a, is a sort of religious version of of Travis Bickle.
0: (laughs) And, And whereas with, with, um, Travis Bickle's character in Taxi Driver, directed by Scorsese, written by Schrader. he he's sort of this embodiment of of rage, you know, of anger. And I think uh, uh, Reverend Toller's character is more of this embodiment of despair. Um, oh, that's a
1: good that's a good way of putting it. Yeah,
0: yeah. But there are some definite similarities. The book that John referenced uh, is called The Transcendental Style in Film, and it it's a study of Similarities between three uh, three filmmakers: Carl Dreyer, Robert Bresson, and Yasujirō Ozu, who's a, a Japanese filmmaker, and the way that they express kind of spirituality or transcendental themes in their films. Through and I'm 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 peeking at the 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 summary on the back of the book because it's been a while since I looked at it. I've I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read. Uh, excerpts from it. And it's often like anthologized in books on religion and film, like the kind of key chapter of it is, you know, often included in anthologies that are studying religion and film. So I'll I'll read just a a brief uh, thing here that, that encapsulates it that um, the transcendental style expresses a spiritual state by means of austere camera work acting devoid of self-consciousness and editing that in, that avoids editorial comment. And so these three directors Oh, that
1: describes this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow, what were those
1: three principles
0: again? Austere camera work. Okay. Acting devoid of self-consciousness. And editing that avoids editorial comment. And so Schrader says that these three filmmakers use a kind of common dramatic language, even though they're in different cultural settings. Like he sees that there's these common things in their work, and and he re, he re-released this is interesting because i would like to take a look at this he he re-released the or re uh what do you call it revised the book that's the word um and and re, it was republished in 2018 and he has some additional sections in the book that extend the framework to looking at the works of andrei tarkovsky russian filmmaker who did uh the great film on andrei rublev the iconographer and but also did like solaris and stalker and a bunch of, you know, kind of interesting, like action and science fiction types of films. Uh, Bela Tarr, who I've seen a c- couple of uh, his his films, uh, Workmeister Harmonies, which is like the slowest, most languid movie I think I've ever <laughs> spent three hours watching in my life. Um, Bela Tarr, T-A-R-R, uh, and a couple of other modern filmmakers from uh, from kind of world cinema. So he extends the transcendental style kind of framework to consider films that were released by these directors after the original publication of, of his book back in the 70s. And so that, that, that's it in a, in a nutshell. He's really interested in, yeah, the way spirituality or transcendental themes are expressed through the kind of unique language of cinema, through camera work, through acting, through editing, and not just through narrative, not just through storytelling that could be, you know, just as easily be, you know, a novel or a short story as, as a film. So he, you know, he's a fascinating dude, cer- certainly a serious thinker. I think he's in, I think he's like close to 80 now or something. I mean, he's been at this a long time. He was raised in a a Protestant tradition, whereas Scorsese was raised in a Catholic tradition. And at one point was considering priesthood and, and went to seminary. So both of these iconic writer directors. Um,
1: yeah. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because uh, not just Protestant, but I mean, like, hardcore reformed he grew up in Grand Rapids, yeah he's Dutch reformed I mean Schrader he's Dutch, and I know this world this is where my wife's from, and uh my brother and I both married into western Michigan uh people. My brother's wife is like legit Dutch veldir is her last name uh my wife just grew up around it, but her family's from California but uh um yeah, so he went to christian reformed Christian school. Through, through all through school, K through 12, went to Calvin college. Yeah. Um, And this was in the days when uh, this is 56. He would have been in the fifties and early sixties as a student. This is back when uh, Calvinist uh, reformed churches were very anti film. So they couldn't go see movies. This is very different. You and I kind of grew up in holiness churches that also had film suspicion, but it was, it had different, it had different grounds. Uh, the reformed were more just suspicious of entertainment. I think ours was a little bit more uh, anxious about, you know, sexual <laughs> expression, I think, but,
0: um, and just yeah.
1: worldliness. Yeah. Worldliness. Whereas the, that wasn't exactly the the thinking in the reform traditions uh, anxieties about film, but so for him, his, uh, his departure from his reformed background is kind of uh, very much linked with his love of film. And so there's a, There's there. It's not an accident that it took in a way his whole career for him to, to finally take this up as a subject matter. And actually you can tell one of the, you mentioned Scorsese, but even just in this movie itself, you have this guy, he's the pastor of quote, first reformed and the church is very austere. Uh, in the in reformed architecture style right you'd no icons no imagery of any kind the pure word of god that's a central element in the reformed tradition i picked i mean i i i went to school with reformed people presbyterians out in new jersey they're not as extreme as the the dutch but it's the same thing there like miller chapel which is about exactly the size and shape of this church it reminded me of miller chapel in many ways the mm-hmm. the, the decor it's all white big organ um but no imagery right no images yeah. and The austerity of the visual medium, uh, which you know, for a filmmaker is very, it feels like a lot of loss, right. Who wants the visual richness and lushness of a Catholic worship space, you right. know, but then all of the, all of the religious ref, like, so in the parsonage or the manse or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. the stuff he's reading and writing about and thinking about, it's all Catholic mystics. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a conversation taking place between reformational and Roman theology, yeah internal to the film i have very few like theses about this film this was one of my club clev- this is one of my only clever ones i wanted to pitch at you is there's this kind of dynamic and I, whether this is schrader's mindset or not is you almost get a sense of like the valoration of suffering is in many ways more dangerous in this kind of austere reformed kind of setting because it doesn't have any dramatic play to be what's the Aristotelian term in art of X? Ex-
0: what's that? There's no like moment of catharsis for
1: catharsis, it. Catharsis, right? Whereas like, cl- I mean, cause clearly like Catholic theology valorizes suffering, but it's kind of like, it's valorized once a week in the mass. And then we like go on and live our life, right? There, I'm not saying Catholics get it all right, but I mean, there is, it's it, it finds a dramatic home. Mm-hmm. Whereas the sort of austerity of the word in a kind of radical Protestant kind of mode, which in many ways is, this is a thing where the first reformed and the, the, you know, living water Congregational church or whatever it's called the, the, the mega church abundant life. Uh, what was that? Abundant life is the abundant challenge. life theory. They're really two sides of the same coin. They're both embodying this kind of Protestant austerity with, with regard to image and right. Cause it's still just words. You, you got to talk yourself into being happy and, I feel like there's this little, and, and you mentioned on the break, something about, there's that picture of this, uh, this hand.
0: Yeah. So in, on his desk in the, in the rectory, w- let's find all the words we could use to call the parsonage, the man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, he, he, uh, the desk that he writes at his journal and drinks his whiskey. Uh, there's a paperweight. I think it's a paper, supposed to be a paperweight, but it's a, it's a kind of small image encased in like a uh, clear acrylic or whatever. And it's sitting there on his desk and it's just, it's a hand. It looks like it's in a black, you know, like the sleeve of a clerical robe or something, you know, you see like a black sleeve and a little bit of a white sleeve poking out and a hand um, kind of out, outstretched, extended. And there's a little red, something like a little red thing in the middle of the palm, just right dead in the middle of the palm. And uh, and I had to know what that was because they focus on it really closely in one scene where it's like a top down shot of his desk. And then there's a couple of other times when he's writing at his desk and you see it in the frame. And I I had to know what it was. And it, from what I could tell, it's supposed to be a hazelnut in the hand, which is a reference to Julian of Norwich, who reflected on a hazelnut until it took on the proportions of the entire world. She sort of saw the whole world in a in a hazelnut. Uh, but John, you were saying like, when you first saw it, you, you, wondered about if it was supposed to, cause it's red, it's a little red seed or nut right in the middle of the palm. And so it also looks a bit like the stigmata, like the mark of the nail pierced hand. Yeah. I mean, it's right in
1: the spot where that would be and it has the right color. And I'm sure it's, I'm sure whoever created that image, which I think probably has a life outside and prior to the film probably was, was engaging in both. I mean, the. Mm-hmm. The stigmata would be the experience. St. Francis is probably the most famous one to have said to have this experience. It's one where someone's come to identify themselves so much with the suffering of Christ that they come to actually bleed in the same place as he did the wound, the wound of the head, the side, the hands and the feet. Mm-hmm. And it's usually pictured as in the palm. Um, you'll see a, an icon of St. Francis will often have his hands up and you'll see a little red dot in the palms. And, and Julian of Norwich is is very much in this tradition. She was living during the plague, during a pandemic and her famous line, all shall be well, all shall be well is not a kind of, yay, happy day. It's in the context of all this great suffering when you can start to see that all things uh, are held together by God. um, Nevertheless, right. It's a nevertheless, all shall be well, not a see everything is well. Right. Um. So she really gets that hope and despair tension, keeps it alive, and and so she would be a kind of stigmata type person. She had a very much an experience of Christ suffering, and and interestingly, her he's kind of living a sort of a sort of virgin a, a imitation, a parody perhaps of her own life. She was an anchorite nun, so she was not a part of a convent with other nuns. Rather was, was linked to a local church and just lived in a little cell attached to that church where she never departed and, and food would be handed to her Eucharist would be, sometimes she would live only on the Eucharist. You know, she was a little weird Uh, and a little extreme with the kind of, you know, bringing a little too much suffering on herself, but around surrounded by a lot of suffering too. But she had a window and would speak to people through the window and actually live right on a major walk through a major traveling uh, path from Northern to Southern England, Norwich is on. So we, you picture in some ways she's very much exclude, you know, this secluded person, but in other way she was engaged in a kind of conversational relationship with the world passing by, which in some ways you kind of see happening in his life. He's very secluded, isolated. He's attached to this church, very austere life. Uh, sort of identifying himself with suffering, but, you know, the whole, the, the whole world of the, ec- the coming ecological disaster is kind of passing him by and he's sort of engaging with it and connecting with it and sort of absorbing it into himself uh for good or ill, mostly for ill, but uh
0: <laughs> that's one of, that's one of the other tensions that I had jotted down is between the real world and the monastery. There's this sort of Ah there's, yes. There's a scene where the where Pastor Jeffers of the megachurch says something about, you know, you don't live in the real world and uh you're you know, you just like that monk that you like. What's his name? You know um, Yes so the megachurch is ironic because
1: Merton was obsessed with talking about the real world and, and how spirituality speaks to politics. Right. Um, Yeah. So
0: (laughs) Reverend Jeffers is clearly not, he, you know, he, he hasn't even read merton and
1: <laughs> who's that monkey and all this going on about and i assure you that in the 60s when schrader went to college at calvin college thomas merton and julian norwich were not on the reading list i mean this is not he did not grow up on this stuff so so on the one hand he's drawing on his reformed background for a lot of the the visual austerity Mm-hmm. which then again matches the the austerity of the color and camera work that is part of the transcendental style that he's working with through, But a lot of the language and imagery and references are to this sort of mystical Catholic tradition that he would have learned later in life, perhaps even mediated to him through Scorsese, who's also yeah. uh, aware of these sources and read them in seminary. So you really get the dialogue between these different traditions that play out uh, sort of in the, in the film itself in a way that I found very fascinating because th- these are my, these are my shaping influences, exactly. right? I grew up Wesleyan yeah. holiness, but I was trained at Princeton in a reformed tradition, uh, a tradition of the word and of thought and of, and of articulation and of austerity of image. But I'm sort of like, I, you know, drink pretty deeply from a, medieval and monastic, uh, spirituality tradition. And I consider both valid and both my traditions just, yeah. you know, it's not, this isn't a, Oh, I'm, I'm sick of that whole Karl Barth, you know, Schleiermacher Calvin thing. Now I'm doing the Catholic thing that uh, perhaps some of, I have some former teachers who worry about that. John, is that what you were doing now? It's like, well, no, really it all. It's all of a piece. It's all one. Everything belongs. It all fits into one, uh, sort of emerging, Ecumenical Christian theology, but you know. Anyway, that's me. That's not. That's not Schrader talking now. That's but just I me
0: talking. I, do, but. <laughs> I do think I think you're hitting on an important theme by talking about how the the word heavy Protestant tradition and especially yep. Reformed tradition sort of uh, deconstructs in a way like that falls yep. short. Language fails. Language yep. fails at exactly. a certain point, and as he goes deeper into his despair, which is both Again, his embrace of this um, this environmental activism, but also his own health concerns, which become clearer as the film wears on, and his sort of relational uh, alienation—you know, again pushing this woman away who really cares about him, and then trying to care for Mary, the widow, in in her despair. There's a point I I think there's there's a real pivotal point. It's and and I, I would see it as the kind of shift into the third act of the film where he 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 tears out some pages of his journal and yes uh, and he he he's you know he he's like the experiment of trying to put in language his experiences is failing clearly and he tears out some pages of his journal and he starts over and he you know uh he, he and he but his writing is becoming even i don't know even even more detached and abstract and you know he's not just kind of recounting the events of his day anymore he's you know it's getting much more mystical and despairing and then and we haven't touched on this yet but there's um so there's uh there's a scene early in the film and i I, it's before michael's uh, suicide that, um, Mary, the wife has found uh, a suicide vest. I think, I can't remember if you mentioned that earlier or not, but that she finds a uh, explosives in the garage and, and, uh, she asks him, she asks the pastor to take them away and they decide not to call the police, but he, so he, he's taken Michael's suicide vest. And then later in the film, after Michael's death, she asks him to kind of help her clear out a lot of Michael's stuff. And, and so he ends up with it back at his house, including like Photos that he goes through the of all these kind of environmental disasters that really, again, contribute to his malaise. But there's a point at which he tries on the vest. He puts on the vest and um, he does a couple of interesting things. He goes to this uh, toxic waste dump site where they've actually had Michael's funeral earlier in the film. They've scattered his ashes at this toxic.
1: <laughs> and that gets him in trouble with this big donor behind the, because <laughs> <Yeah, there's, there's... laughs> he's just trying to be a pastor to these these people and he doesn't really say anything controversial in his sermon, but he's a, but then it gets, you know, it gets its way into the press and that's a classic pastoral experience where you're just, you know, you may actually have sympathy with, with someone who's controversial, but you didn't, you you think, well, I didn't say anything. I just showed up and, and (laughs) perform my priestly duties. And yet you're now associated with it.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's
1: another moment when he gets, he gets angry and, and gets defensive
0: yeah, the big the big donor runs an energy company that's that's on this list. Yep. He's number five on the list of like the the biggest polluter, yep. um, and uh, he gets called out for doing this funeral of this environmental activist uh, and scattering his ashes at this toxic waste site because it gets picked up in some of the eco, you know, green you know green movement news, and uh, and mentions the church, the both the big church and the small church in the article. Yep. He gets called out for that, but he, uh,
1: so he goes back there. You wanted to say
0: something about that. Wearing the the best. And he also goes and he takes a tour of the energy company, like, a just sort of like, a uh, you know, the kind of tour that they would just give to anybody who like wants to see the factory and they, you know, and they're trying to frame it as though like bulk chemicals or bulk energy, whatever they're called is, um, you know, you know, has been leading the, you know, environmental protections movement and all this kind of stuff that he knows is garbage. But he, but he, he's wearing the best this whole time. He's, he's in the plant, uh, taking a tour, wearing the, the suicide vest. And then he goes back to the, um, the site, the toxic waste site of the funeral. And it's at that moment that his voiceover narration, which again, we've always assumed is, is in, is part of his journal. And I don't think we see him journal again after this. That he says,
1: ah, I missed
0: that. I think you're right. He said, he says, I've found another form of prayer. Whoa. This is where I think like there's a shift that's happening from the, the word to the body that he's, he's beginning to take prayer into his body and, and stop this attempt to kind of express it all through language, but to embody it in his person And so the first step is putting on this vest, and you know and you kind of wonder like is he contemplating like setting it off while he's on this tour is he is he out there? yeah, that's what creates the
1: tension, the forward momentum of the film right by the third act is you sense is he going to does he think that he is sort of reconciling with his son and redeeming this this michael right. uh, and by sort of doing this act of ecoterrorism? And the film, on one hand, is, is kind of warning us, I think, about, and I, some of Schrader's interviews indicate as much, that the kind of valorization of suffering can turn into this kind of twisted, mm-hmm. uh, destructive form of Christianity. But at the same time, there's something positive also taking place in him here, as he, he, he no longer seems as divided right. when he stops journaling. When he when he gives up on the word, yeah. um, he starts to find a kind of uh an embodied way of being in the world. Yeah. And that encounter with her where she asks him, we used to lay face right. to face, body oh, yeah. to body.
0: Yeah, we need to talk about these two scenes. So before especially special, yeah, before, let, let's
1: let's end with those. Let's end with those, because I got we gotta wrap up. But and,
0: go uh, ahead. well, the first one that John just alluded to, um, she comes over, uh, she tells him that she's um, she's woken up in the middle of the night and she's just in despair and everything just seemed to be kind of caving in on her. And she drove around and she ends up at the parsonage and he invites her into this big, empty like living room, dining room in the, in the parsonage where there's just one chair. It's an otherwise empty room. And she sits down and talks to him. And then she describes this thing that she and her husband used to do that, that they called the magical mystery tour, which the Beatles fans here uh, I'm yeah. sure, appreciated. But um and he, he says, do you want me to do this? And she says, yes. And so he, he lays down on the floor kind of in a, uh, you know, a pseudo uh, crucifix kind yep. of pose, not quite, yep. but, but with his arms and legs outstretched and she lays on top of him like nose to nose, body to body, like hands, um, palms pressed against each other. Um, and she says, you know, we would, we would just do this and and synchronize our breathing and, Try to have as much body to body contact, and they're you know fully clothed. And so he lays down, and she lays face to face with him, um, and they're breathing. And it's the first moment where the film kind of takes an, an, a a non realist turn. Right. Um, they begin to levitate. And, and the camera starts to kind of do this spinning thing that it's otherwise Which the camera
1: has barely moved the entire film up to this point. It's right. part of the austere style Right, is the camera doesn't pan and, and tilt when people move, it just stays still.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, and, it's, it's, and I'm, I, I, sh- I, I thought to mention this earlier, but it, another odd thing about the film, but very intentional choice is that it's shot in four by three aspect. Yeah. Rate so four by three compared to widescreen gives a, a greater kind of sense of vertical lines and of mm-hmm. like upward space, vertical space, but it also does a couple of things when anytime there are human bodies in the frame, you get, you get both more of the body vertically, but it presses people together. If there are scenes with like two people, there's like more, you know, they have to be closer together. There's more That's right. visual kind of uh, the way they occupy the visual space. So scenes when, Two people are, whether they're sitting kind of knee to knee, face to face, talking. There's a lot of scenes like this in the film between the pastor and Michael, between the pastor and Mary, between the pastor and the megachurch pastor. Um, they're either sitting next to each other on a on a couch, or they're sitting kind of knee to knee in opposite chairs or whatever. Um, and that, yeah, for- the little
1: coffee shop inside the huge church, yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> there's a couple scenes there, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so they so his choice to use four by three, which is a much more kind of throwback <laughs> that, you know, yeah. we're now we're in such a, you know, a widescreen era of, of cinema is kind of an interesting choice in its own right with what it does to the film and the language of the film. But um, so in this scene, they start to levitate they and, and the camera starts to spin and then suddenly they're outside of the room and eventually they disappear from the frame entirely, but they, yep. they start to sort of, hover through space at first they're up in amongst the stars. And then they're like, you know, going around snow capped mountains and forests and all of this stuff. But then it shifts to like scenes of pollution and mm-hmm. uh, fires and all of this kind of, again, images of environmental collapse. It very, it feels very much like uh, a Katsi, the, I wish I could remember the director who did those, those three films that are all about sort of creation and anti-creation, but it's got this very, you know, uh, bleak, uh, powerful. Yeah. Of images of, of like the beauty of nature and then of like what we're doing to it. And they eventually kind of disappear from the frame entirely. And we're just seeing,
1: and it's just us. You're now in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're going on the tour as the viewer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a weird scene and we don't really know what to make of it. I mean, it's like, as soon as they start levitating, you're like, what's going on here? That's
1: what did I sign up for?
0: Such a departure from you know, an otherwise fairly kind of realist film but the final scenes of the film which I'm not sure that they you know that they, I think they're very intentionally ambiguous yeah you uh, would have no way of making any sense of them whatsoever interpreting them at all if we didn't have this earlier scene yes so uh, should I talk about the final scene
1: then? yeah do it spoil it and we'll comment on it and then we'll wrap it up <laughs>
0: So in the in the final scene, uh, we've mentioned the consecration, the reconsecration of the church. And um just prior to that, Mary is is leaving to move in with her sister. She's, you know, gonna spend the last couple of months before the baby is born, living with her sister in Buffalo or something. And and since so she's living in this empty house that she and Michael had rented together after his death, and and Toller emphatically tells her not to come to the consecration. She says, Well, I'll see you at the consecration. And he says, like, no, you don't need to be there. And she's like, I want to be there for you. And you've been there for me. And, and, and that earlier scene, by the way, just kind of ends. It just cuts to the next scene. There's no explanation. We don't see them kind of coming back into the room and her leaving his, you know, his, his house or anything like it just cuts to the next scene. And there's no explanation. So he doesn't want her at the reconsecration because he's, he's planning his eco-terrorism act of martyrdom, where he's going to take the suicide vest and take out the 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 energy ceo and there's like all yeah. the gathered in the church the the governors there the you know the head of the energy company and and he's he's in the in the parsonage putting on the vest under his clerical robes and all of this stuff and we see him getting ready for this when he looks out the window and sees mary showing up at the yeah the service, even then, after he's told her not to, and um, gets really angry. You know, he takes his robe off and screams into his robe and uh, just kind of starts going into a tailspin. And um, he goes and gets the razor wire that he's taken out of yes his earlier and starts wrapping it, or he takes his his he strips down his upper half, so just bare skin, and he starts wrapping that razor wire around himself. And um, you know, get. Taking on that like pain and suffering, and we, you know, he's bleeding, and he puts on. Then he puts on a white. Acid. Some of the
1: first color we see him. You know what I mean? Like it's very, um, very washed out, and lots of browns and so, so black and white.
0: Apparently, he's decided not to go through with the the bombing because he doesn't want to kill Mary. But he, but he still has decided like this is the end of him, <laughs> the end of the line. Yeah, yeah, and he um he pours out his whiskey glass that has been f- full on his desk uh, for most of the scenes when he's in that space, when he's in that room he has whiskey and he pours it out and he, and he pours uh, drain cleaner into the glass. He fills mm-hmm. it and he's put his cassock white cassock on over the razor wire and there's blood kind of coming through <laughs> the, uh, the razor wire. And right as he's about to drink, Mary shows up, at the door, like she's in the apartment. Wait, Actually, there's no knock. There's no, that's right. That's and important. Yes. Important because they're, the service is about to start. And earlier they've been looking for him and the pastor Jeffress goes and like knocks on the door and like jiggles the handle, like he, and it's locked. So he can't get in, but all mm-hmm. of the- in the room with him and the lighting shifts. Every th- the, suddenly the room is like really brightly lit with natural light. And he's in this white cassock. And he, the, the way the, the camera depicts it, he drops the glass. He doesn't act, you know, we don't see him throw down the, you know, glass full of Drano. Uh, He drops the glass and he runs over to Mary and they embrace and they kiss and the camera starts to spin again in Mm that, um, that sort of strange, non-realistic kind of way that the earlier scene did and the film cuts to black with them kissing, and the and we're hearing the audio from the service in the church there. And the the woman that he spurned earlier is singing, leaning on the everlasting arm. Yep. <laughs> what a fellowship! What a <laughs> divine, leaning on the everlasting arm. She's singing this acapella as we see these events play out with him. And and it's a really cryptic kind of ending. Uh, and I remember John and I after we watched it together, even talking about you know, is does she. Does she save him um, or not? Are we seeing something, some fantasy play out in his head in his dying moments? Yeah, which to me seems like the much more uh, like. Yes. Um, and the, the
1: earlier scene has signaled us that that her presence and the turning of the camera in that way are are signals of a of a surreal moment.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think we're. I think we're left to to ponder, you know, what has happened, even though we, we don't see him, you know, drink the poison as it were. He's, we, we do see him. The chalice.
1: Yeah. Are you able to drink my cup?
0: (laughs) So it's a, it's certainly like people who are wanting easy answers from a film and, and clear meanings uh, are, you will hate this
1: movie.
0: (laughs) They're not wrong to be frustrated uh, with this film, but um, I think it's one that's really worth, Uh, worth seeing and worth pondering. And uh, even if, even if you would prefer Marvel movies, you know, like, like me and John do often, it's, it's one that hangs with you for a while and really raises some important questions about ministry, uh, about spirituality, about the earth and our, you know, our custody and stewardship of it and of the danger of, of, of despair and depression uh, and alienation, the importance of relationships and connection with, with other people Um, so you may, may not know what, and you may interpret the ending of the film completely differently. I think Paul Schrader is giving, giving you the out, so to speak. If you really, if you want to think that, you know, she showed up and he didn't drink the Drano and (laughs) they kissed. And then she took him to the hospital and got his uh, razor wire wounds stitched up or something. I don't, you know, we, we, we don't know. And we're not, I don't think we're supposed to know, but, um, I think, uh, Yeah. It's a, it's a film that is a bit haunting in that way. And and it's a powerful
1: movie. It's one of the best I've seen uh, in a long time. It was definitely on my, it's on my, probably on my top 10 list for the decade. I would actually like to do that sometime now that the decade is over, but um, yeah, I love talking about it with you today, man. And I reckon if anyone listened to this, who just kind of likes to listen to people geek out and you hadn't seen the movie, don't worry that we've spoiled it. Cause it's the plot is not what's doing the work uh, clearly, as we can tell it's the imagery and the language. So it's definitely worth a watch. And if you have seen the film, I hope that you found what we had to say today, helpful uh, to get your mind stirred and your own thinking and, and, uh, and, and exploration. And maybe, maybe it gets you to want to watch it again. I know I'm ready to turn around and watch it a third time after talking with you today. So Uh, So thanks, Brandon, so much. Thanks uh, to all our uh, patron saints out there for supporting the show. And uh, thanks uh, to Todd and Eric for your production work. Can't imagine doing this without you. And with that said, we say have a great week. Bye-bye.